Well, Happy New Year. Hey, you're in the best place you could be starting the year off at church. There's no better place to be. Um, you know, I love New Year's and um, like New Year's in general. I always love a new year. And it's great because at the beginning of the year, I always spend some time just kind of thinking about my life and how the previous year went and what I want to work on in the next year. So I always set goals and uh, not, not really, you know, New Year's resolutions, but I just think about my life. What needs to be changed? What needs to be adjusted? And one of the things that I think is really cool is I always write those things down and because often you go through the year and you think, man, I just didn't accomplish anything last year. I don't know if you ever think that, but that's like my general thing is, man, I didn't do enough. I didn't accomplish enough. And it's been kind of fun um, at the end of the year to just look at the goals that I made over the previous year and just say, did I do those? And what is always super encouraging is sometimes I accomplished them all, even though I didn't feel like it. Other times I accomplished some of them and not others. And I just think that, that every new year is an incredible gift um, because we get to think about where are we headed and what can we tweak and how can we improve what God is calling us to do. And I think that's good. I do that in my personal life, but not only for my personal life, but for the church, uh, for our ministry, for what we're doing. And so I would just encourage you to think about your life. Think about your, your spiritual life and how God's working in your family. And what are, what are goals that God would have you make? And uh, one of the things I, I want to just throw out there is if you write your goals down and you want me to, put them in a self-addressed stamped envelope and give them to me. And uh, if you do that, I will read your goals. I will pray for you about those specific goals. And then in June, I'll mail it to you. So halfway through the year, you'll get your goals. It'll be weird. You'll see this envelope in the mail and you'll go, wow, that writing looks so familiar. Who is that? What is this? And then you'll open it and you'll realize, oh, that's right. That's what that was. So I just want to encourage you, pray about this year. Um, I, um, I love mission statements and our church has a great mission statement. And so I want to, we're going to spend the next, we're going to spend this month talking about our church's mission statement. What is our purpose? Why are we here? What are we doing? And uh, Foothills Church has a great mission statement. And uh, so we're going to be talking about that. We're going to start this morning. We're going to do that for four weeks. And we're going to take a break in the middle of January. And we're just going to talk about the whole issue of life. Um, we're going to talk about abortion. We're going to talk about that on January 16th. We're going to consider what God calls us to do and how, as a culture, we should approach that. So the whole month of January is going to be the mission statement with a break in the middle. Now, we finished off last year talking about Colossians 1.28. That was our message on the 26th, which is just that we proclaim Jesus, admonishing and teaching every person so that we may present them complete in Christ. And then we just actually spent... The 26 is a church family. We just prayed about those things. We prayed for God's help next year in being the church that God wants us to be and accomplishing the things that he wants us to accomplish. Now I'm going to put a Foothills Church mission statement up here. And there's basically four things that we're going to look at here. And one of the things I want to say about mission statements is, hey, mission statements are great. It's an important thing to kind of figure out how to phrase things. But we care way less about how we phrase things and what we want to do um, compared to Scripture and what God calls us to do. And so a mission statement 
is actually something we just try to take. What are the significant things that God tells us to do? And how do we phrase those in a way that will help us accomplish them? And so I'm going to spend the whole of this morning not on our mission statement, but on what God says. And the reason that whoever picked this, and it wasn't me, whoever came up with this mission statement, the reason that it's phrased the way it is. So let's just read this, and you'll see four things. Foothills Church exists to glorify God. And that's what we're talking about this morning, glorifying God. Foothills Church exists to glorify God and to make disciples. And so if that's why we exist, this is an interesting thing to think about, then we should never do anything that doesn't glorify God and that doesn't make disciples. If it doesn't glorify God and it doesn't make disciples, somebody else should do it somewhere else. But if that's the purpose of our church, then that's all we should do. And here's the other thing, too, is that unless we understand that our purpose is to glorify God and make disciples, the rest of this mission statement won't make sense. And we might get misguided. We might understand it incorrectly if we don't interpret it in light of glorifying God and making disciples. So here's what it says. Foothills Church exists to glorify God and make disciples by unconditionally accepting people where they are while encouraging a transforming life in Christ. So that second half is how we do the first half, to unconditionally accept people where they are and encourage a transforming life in Christ. And so we won't talk about those today. We'll get to those in about three and four weeks. We'll hit those two. But today we're going to focus on glorifying God. Now, I think my battery just died. I know, but it's going to die again. It's red. Can somebody run me up a battery? That's all right. We Miles, this, this is temporary. They'll, they'll get us going again in a little bit. Okay. So, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. It's nice to have talented people that can take care of business. So, mission statements. Uh, they're not scripture. Um, this is our mission statement, and it summarizes what the Bible tells us. Now, just as far as mission statements go, um, there is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And uh, that was a document that was written in 1647. And what it is, is it's a list of theology that people should know. So they just decided way back then, what are the doctrinal things that people should know and believe? And then a catechism is something that you train people, you teach them, they memorize it, they learn it. And one of the things that that mission statement says, oh, nice, hold on. <laughs> All right, are we, uh, are we plugged in and working yet? There we go. Okay, we're back to normal. 
All right, we're into the new year in the right way. So in 1647, they came up with that, and this is basically their mission statement is very similar. It says the chief end, man's chief end, the main reason that man exists is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Desiring God Ministries has actually rephrased that, and they say the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And just the whole point of that is that actually the greatest joy, the greatest happiness that you and I could ever have on earth is to glorify God. It's to love him with all of our heart, to serve him. And this is the amazing thing, is that God tells us that we're supposed to glorify him, greatest commandment in all the Bible, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God has created us so that when we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are the most satisfied, the most fulfilled. The greatest gift anybody has is God himself. And what happens is the world is broken. Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And what Satan does and what the world system does is to replace our greatest treasure with something less doesn't matter what you serve. It doesn't matter what you pursue. It doesn't matter what you love most. If it's not God, you are missing out. And so it's amazing that God says, love me more than anything else. And in that, we are the most blessed. What is the second greatest commandment in the Bible? It's to love others as you love yourself. See, we love other people because they're made in God's image. It's kind of how we love God is to love other people. I was thinking about that when uh, Michelle and I had kids. And uh, our kids, when they were born, they looked like Michelle. And I just remember seeing Julianne with her dark hair and her personality. And and I loved Julianne because she was my kid. But I loved her even more because every time I looked at her, she reminded me of Michelle. And the thing is, is that We love people because people are made in God's image. And you know that loving other people is also an incredible gift that God gives us. Self-centered, self-selfish people are miserable. What What did Jesus say? He said it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, when you care about other people, when you love other people, when you have deep relationships with people, that is the most satisfying thing. It's worth more than anything else you have. Like, think about this. If somebody said to you, "Um, I'm going to give you all the money, I'll give you your favorite car, I'll give you whatever you want on earth, you can have it. But um, everybody in your family is going to die, and you'll never have any more friends. Um, who, Who would trade that? What's sad is people who are not thoughtful about how they live, they actually do that. They lose everybody and everything important because they pursue things that don't matter. Well, this is what God says about glorifying himself. This is 1 Corinthians 10.31. It just says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let me just ask you a question. Foothills mission statement. Foothills Church exists to glorify God. Is that what God tells us our purpose is? 
mean, he tells every person, whatever you do, the simple things like eating or drinking, anything that you do, do everything for the glory of God. Now, here's the, the crazy thing. If you were to search church mission statements, this is everywhere, glorifying God. It's in almost every church mission statement. Now, one of the things that I want to encourage you with today is what is a church? Is a church a building or is a church people? Okay, so the church is people. So if the purpose of Foothills Church is to glorify God, you are Foothills Church. What that means is that your purpose is to glorify God. And so as we talk about our church, our church should reflect what God has called every single one of us to be. And here's the deal. Everybody says um, that they exist to glorify God. What's the most important thing anybody says? Oh, they should glorify God. But what is so sad is that churches that write that their purpose is to glorify God are not focused on glorifying God. People who say, I exist to glorify God, don't live every day with the purpose of glorifying God. I mean, these are just like these pietistic words that we say that don't touch life often. But the truth is, is that they should always touch life. Now, I want to encourage you, if you look at your life and you say, no, I am personally driven and motivated by things other than God's glory. Well, welcome to the club. We'll come to that toward the end, and actually the recognition of that is part of what glorifies God. So we're going to consider this. Um, God is the greatest gift that he gives. Think about the value of relationships. Now, what has gone wrong? What has gone wrong? And, and it's basically this. Um, Satan has brought about the fall of mankind. We are slaves to sin, and we have a tendency to be like Satan. Like every single person, every unbeliever is like Satan in that they are their highest priority. Uh, do you know that that's what Satan wanted? Uh, that, that what caused the fall was for Satan to be prideful and arrogant and say, everybody worships God, but actually I want to be worshipped. And that is where every person starts with a desire to be worshipped. Look at Isaiah fourteen thirteen. This is a description of Satan's fall. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And then it goes on and it says, but you will be brought down to Sheol. And so Satan's problem is he said, no, I want to be worshipped as God. And if you think about almost any problem that you see in the world, it comes down to people saying, no, I will be first. Remember in the temptation of uh, Christ, what was one of the things that Satan wanted? He wanted worship, right? Told Jesus, bow down and worship me and I'll give you everything. You know, if you think about it, that's why every, every struggle that people have with God and with his word flows from a desire to be worshipped instead of to worship. You ever thought about that? Have you ever known anybody that's gotten mad at God because something happened in their life? Do you know why that happens? It's because their perspective on life is incorrect. They don't understand the purpose of life to bring God glory. 
Um, so when people suffer, they feel like, God, I'm suffering. Your purpose is to exalt me, to hold me up, to make sure I'm always happy. And I'm suffering. That is not fair. That is not right. People read things in the Bible and they struggle with it. Like, how about the flood? God creates the world. Uh, I heard one person say, why do we put um, pictures of the flood in nurseries with a bunch of little kids? Why do we do that? It's like this terrible story. We got two of every animal going on there. No, that's when God drowned everybody in the world. And you just think about why are those things troubling? God creates the world. The world rebels against them. The world says, no, we're going to gather together. We, we outvote God. And if they had an election, there were only four people <laughs> that would have voted for God. You know, Noah, his three sons, actually, I got to work on my math, seven, because they had wives too. Every single other person on earth had rebelled against God. What was God's response? He just says, I'm going to drown the entire world. I'm going to make a boat to save Noah and his family. And people think, how is that right? How is it right for God to drown the world? Just go through the Bible. Everything that anybody struggles with is because they think that they are the pinnacle of the universe and that God is there to serve them. Um, In fact, the Bible tells us that that's why God's wrath is poured out on earth. It's because people worship themselves instead of God. Look what it says here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has showed it to them. And then he says in verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. People decided that they would rather worship what God made than to worship God. And God says, no, I come first. All of the earth is, exists for me. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 10, 31. We're going to make a few observations. And then we're going to answer three questions. What does God's glory mean? How important is glorifying God? And how does a person actually glorify So that's where we're headed. Now, to tell you a little bit about 1 Corinthians, we're actually, when we're done with this series, we're going to go through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so you'll hear more about that. But we're going to just pull this verse right out of 1 Corinthians. A little bit, 1 Corinthians is a very prominent city, city, and it was full of immorality and paganism. And Paul writes this book to challenge people. This is how you live in a sinful society. It would be like writing a letter to the, a church in the city of Las Vegas. Um, that, that is what Corinth was like. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, which is where this verse shows up, in 1 Corinthians 10, um, Paul has gotten this report of struggles, that, sin struggles that the church is having, and he addresses those in 1 Corinthians. And then in chapter 7 through 16, they've asked questions about how do we live rightly before God. And they're asking questions about um, sexuality and marriage and all these things. And so this, this verse comes in a section on the Old Testament saying, because of what you've learned, this is how you should live. 
And uh, this specific section comes in a section on unity. So glorifying God, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It specifically comes in a section dealing with how people relate to each other, taking the glory of God and allowing that to inform relationships. And so let's just jump into this verse. We'll deal with all those other things when we get to 1 Corinthians. But look at this verse. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This verse is all-encompassing. It, it, it addresses everything that you do. When you're picking your clothes, you pick your clothes for the glory of God. When you're deciding what to do for work, you decide what to do for work for the glory of God. When you're deciding what to eat, you eat for the glory of God. This verse is all-encompassing. It touches everything in life. And um, so what, what does that mean about having fun? And what does that mean about all the other things we do? What does that mean about enjoying possessions? Actually, everything we do, we do for God's glory. And that includes all of those things. So it's all-encompassing. It is the purpose of our existence. And it's a guiding principle. This is actually what you're supposed to think about when you wake up in the morning. This is what is supposed to move you through your day. This is how you think about sickness when you get sick. This is how you think about tragedy when somebody in your life dies. This is how you think about a car accident that you get into. This is how you think about managing relationships with people in your life. This is all-encompassing, and it is our purpose, and it actually guides us in everything that we do. You know when God, Jesus says... That uh, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And that is a summary of the entire Old Testament law. And that it comes down to this. If you love God, you will automatically do everything in the Old Testament that God says to do toward him. If you love people, you will automatically do all the things that the Old Testament says in how you're re to relate to people. And so this is like that guiding principle. And so God's actually given us like that whole Old Testament law actually tells you if you love God. The Old Testament law actually tells you if you love people. So, for example, you wouldn't worship an idol if you love God. So if you say, oh, no, no, I love God and you worship idols, no, you don't love God. If you genuinely love other people, you will not covet their things. So if you covet other people's things, it tells you you don't love other people. And so this is this guiding principle that guides everything. And so uh, let's answer some questions here. What does it mean to glorify God? So the first thing is the word for glory is talking about weight, value, importance. Um, it is talking about God's splendor and his magnificence. It's talking about God's worthiness of respect and honor. So to glorify God is to give the highest allegiance, honor, commitment, and esteem, to give attention, affection, and appreciation, and to as ascribe highest worth to God. Um, that is 
um, glorifying God. So it comes down to three things. You could say it this way. What does it mean to glorify God? It is to recognize God's value. You know, glorifying God is not, we don't give God anything in our glory of God. Glorifying God is just looking at him and saying, you are valuable. You are worthy. You are my greatest treasure. It is to reflect glorifying God. When you look at all the things the Bible says about glorifying God, it is to reflect God's character. See, we glorify God when we display his character in our character. And it's something that we proclaim. It's something that we talk about. It's something that we speak about is to glorify God. You know, it's interesting. um, When you think about many churches get off track and many people get off track and many parents get off track because they fail to recognize that God has called us to glorify him. And God does tell us we should love people But we love people, but ultimately we only serve and worship and glorify God. Think about that. Um, John chapter 1 says that Jesus was the light, and when he came into the world as the light, that men loved darkness rather than light. See, there are a lot of people who don't like Jesus. They don't like what Jesus stands for. They don't like God's word. They don't like what the Bible says. And so you have a lot of churches that go, oh, wait a second. We're supposed to reach people. But if we tell people what God says about himself, if we actually read some of the things that the Bible says, people won't like it. And so people, as they think through welcoming others into the church, they try to remove everything that might be offensive about God. And they basically, what are they saying? They're saying, we worship you. We want you to come here. We want you to be happy. And we'll change God's message if it satisfies you. Instead of saying no, we're here to glorify, exalt, worship God, to to describe him the way he describes himself, to teach what he says is true, and we're going to make the path in as easy as possible. Uh, We want to welcome people. We want to make sure people know where we are. We want to make sure that people are comfortable when they come, that they're warmly greeted, that they are cared for, that we are servant-hearted, that we are gracious hosts. That when we show up on Sunday morning, we're saying, hey, gods, we're going to learn about God in there. We can't wait to get there. It's exciting. Come with us. We want to get in there and hear about God and see who he is. We're excited about it. We exalt it. Um, But there are often people say, no, we've got to try to make people, the church, a comfortable place for people who might hate God. Um, The other thing that some people do in churches is they have the truth and they have the worship of God but they're not very inviting, they're not very (laughs) encouraging. It's kind of like they demonstrate with their life that they don't love God. They'd rather sit outside than be in a family that's singing praises and worshiping and learning. It's kind of like somebody standing out in front of the church where God is. I mean, God's everywhere, but the church where people can come and hear about God, and they're just like, move along. There's nothing to see here. Move along. Because people fail to personally worship God, and they don't communicate God's value to the people around them. Some people are actually rude. They make it difficult. They're, they're unkind. They ignore people. See, in the church, we're gracious. We are loving. We are welcoming because we want to introduce people to Jesus. We're careful. We try to do everything really well so that people have easy access to see God's glory. But we don't say 
we worship you and we'll remove anything you don't like. No, we are first and foremost here to worship God. Now think about uh, what this means as it's expressed in Luke 17, 7. You know, we exist for God's pleasure and for his glory. This is how Jesus describes it. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? So he's just saying uh, nobody treats their servants that way. Instead, he will rather say to him, verse 8, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you eat and drink. He does not thank the servant. He does not thank the servant because he did what was commanded. And then here's where Jesus has made that analogy. Did you know that he's talking about you and me? He says here, so also you, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. Ever think about that? We serve God, that is our duty. He deserves everything, we deserve nothing. Now that's glorifying God, that's seeing him for who he is. And we are amazed that this awesome, incredible, loving God loves us so much. And it's amazing that when we glorify God, that is what brings us joy and happiness. You know, that's the reality. God is a God of glory. It's not something we give him. It's something that's true that we need to recognize. Let me read Isaiah chapter 6. Let's read this. In the year that King Huzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And uh, look at Isaiah's response when he sees God's glory. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 6. And this is what God does for us. This is God's amazing uh, grace. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. See, God has glory and we see it. And in a sense, that's like this undoing thing. Like we're terrified in God's presence because of his holiness and our sinfulness. But that's what God did through Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus to die for us, to forgive us so that we could be cleansed. And, that's the, and then, we, then God says, who am I going to send? And we say, okay, send me, I'll go. That, that is our purpose as a church. And by the way, that's not miserable, that's fun. You know, you look at the Corinthian church, and they had all kinds of problems. So when you do a search in the Bible on the word for glory, 
Uh, the top uh, places that you see God's glory discussed are Psalms. That's the Old Testament praise book. Isaiah, that's a book about God and his salvation. The Gospel of John, talking about God becoming and taking on flesh. And 1 Corinthians. It's, it's a discussion of God's glory. Because it actually takes a church from being a self, uh, a backbiting, a conflict church that where people aren't getting along. And the solution to that, the solution to the joy that God wants us to have is to recognize and pursue his glory. See, the truth is that if in your family your highest priority is God's glory, you will have a peaceful and joy. That, there's no better family to be in than a family that is committed to God's glory. Conflict, struggle, difficulty, all of those things are things that flow from families that don't exalt and glorify God. So how important is God's glory? How important is glorifying God? Well, um, it's very prominent in Scripture. It is all over the place. Um, when you think about the Ten Commandments, six of them and over uh, 220 words are used for the laws pertaining to God. The first four um, commandments. Six through ten, or I'm sorry, uh, five through ten, 79 words. When God's giving rules in the Old Testament, the majority of them are focused on him and proper worship. You know, God says, he says this, um, he says, you shall have no gods before me. Um, God is a jealous God, it says. Um, Isaiah 43, 11, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Isaiah 48, 9 says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I will restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, my glory I will not give to another. God's glory is his highest end on earth. So um, failing to glorify God has tremendous consequences. Like it's pretty important. So you think about uh, um, the flood. That was an expression of people who failed to glorify God. Romans 8, we already looked at that. Um, how about Pharaoh in the Old Testament? The Bible says, tells us this in Exodus 9, 16. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You know, people struggle that God raised up Pharaoh and that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. But actually, it, it describes right here why. God says, I have raised you up for the purpose of my glory. And when Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and God's people, what happened? The whole of, of Egypt was destroyed. Nadab and Abihu, do you remember them? Those were Aaron's sons. So they were, pro, they were given the, the responsibility to lead worship in Israel. And God had said, this is exactly how I want you to worship me. And it says this. It says in uh, Leviticus 10.1, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans. And after putting fire in them, they placed incense, incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. See, they failed to glorify God. They said, now, you know what? God gave us instructions on how to worship, but we're going to do it our own way. 
We, we are unconcerned with what God told us. We're going to come up with our own stuff. And God consumed them. Uh, what about Moses? Think about how significant glorifying God's, God is in Moses' life. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 48 um, talks about Moses in that section. And Moses actually treats God, this faithful man, um, the, the man that God says is the most humble man on earth. He treats God with a lack of reverence. He fails to treat God as holy. And God says, Moses, you don't get to enter the promised land. So go up onto a mountaintop, look over into the promised land. You can see it, but you're not going to enter it because you didn't treat me as holy. You know, we might think, oh, no, that's just the Old Testament. That's just the Old Testament thing. Um, Do you guys remember the story in Acts um, of Herod? Acts uh, 12.21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. There's this pagan person who doesn't know God, who doesn't give God glory. He takes glory for himself and God immediately executes him. See, there's often people feel like, oh, they're not a Christian. You can't expect them to live like Christians. Only Christians live like Christians. And we fail to recognize that God is worthy of worship and being glorified. And that is not for Christians. That is for everybody universally. And there are many people who thumb their nose in God's face. They disregard things that God says. They're hateful toward God. And they just continue on. And things go well for them. And that is an expression of God's grace and kindness and mercy. And, and I know uh, Michelle and I, we've been watching the news, and we've seen people, like famous people, say the most irreverent things toward God. And then like a month or two later, you read about the fact that their time on this earth is up. And, and, and I've seen that with people that I know. I've seen that with famous people on TV. We think sometimes that not everybody is obligated to worship God with all of their heart, and they are. And it's not just for the unbelieving world, it's also for believers. We're going to celebrate communion at the end of our service, and we're going to read a passage about how disobedient believers are sometimes disciplined. Um, the Bible talks about a sin leading to death, and he just says, don't pray for people who have committed the sin leading to death. 1 Corinthians talks about people taking the Lord's Supper in an irreverent way, and that it says some people are sick and some people die. So God takes his holiness seriously, and that's something that we all should take very seriously. That is the purpose of all creation. You know, uh, Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Do you remember when the kids were worshiping Jesus and, and on his triumphal entry and the, the Pharisees said, tell the kids to be quiet. And what did Jesus say? If the kids were quiet, the rocks would start glorifying me. Um, glorifying God is the purpose of the universe. It is your purpose. It is the purpose of rocks. It's the purpose of trees. It is everyone's purpose is to glorify God. 
Think about all the times in the Bible that we are told to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says you don't own yourself if you're a Christian. God purchased you. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Um, that's in like all, all the, the passages. You just go through the New Testament. We are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. You know, that was true for the Apostle Paul. That was true for um, Peter. When it says, uh, Peter, um, Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Um, the, the disciples are told not to preach, not to proclaim Jesus. And then they take them and they say, no, we're going to obey God rather than men. And then they're beaten. And this is what it says after that in Acts 5, 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor from, for the name. See, they glorified God with their life. That was their purpose. That brought them joy. And so that is God's purpose. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they were standing there before the furnace, and, he, and, and the king said, I'm going to throw you in there unless you worship my idol. And they said, no, we're going to worship God, and God is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we are not bowing down to your idol. When you look through the Old Testament, you look through all the people that were faithful, that God used in tremendous ways, they were people whose lives were committed to glorifying God. So how important is it? It's very important. It's very significant. So how does a person worship God? How do you worship God? How do you glorify God? And I think one is worship. And we show up on Sunday morning and we gather together and that's partly how we prioritize our relationship with, with God. It's how we give glory is to sing. That's one of the things that the Bible tells us. Um, your life is to, be, is to be overcome. Your entire life is supposed to be an act of worship for God. It is singing, but it's our behavior. It's our obedience. It's everything that we do. Um, we glorify God by cultivating a love for God, where he is our number one affection. Um, this is an encouraging thing. Did you know that you glorify God when you recognize your weakness? When you recognize the fact that I love the things in this world more than I love God? Actually, I can't love God the way I should without his help. When you see weakness and failure in your life and you just go, yeah, I'm a weak, sinful person, and while God should be my greatest desire, my greatest affection, he's not. And then that prayer that says, God, forgive me, and God, help me. As you go through life struggling and failing, that becomes glorifying God when you recognize I am inadequate and I need what Jesus did for me. This is not some high standard that nobody can attain. None of us can attain it. That's the reason that Jesus came. We glorify God by obeying him. Um, and uh, this is another one. You know you glorify God when you suffer? Ever thought about that? First uh, Peter 4.12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share the sufferings of Christ 
that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And 1 Peter 5.10, it goes on and it says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Um, we suffer, and often in our suffering, that is the greatest opportunity to give God glory. That's what the disciples did, the apostles did, and we know that God loves us. As we um, end today, just thinking through our purpose to glorify God, we, we do glorify God, and we're able to do that because of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. Let's uh, consider the Lord's Supper as we uh, just end our morning this morning. Um, take your cups, and let's just consider this time. Um, when we take the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the death of Christ, um, the, what Jesus accomplished in saving us. And the Bible tells us that we are to do this reverently. Um, we don't enter um, a, a communion service. We don't take communion based on our personal righteousness. Um, we don't do that. But we come humbly. We come with a commitment to honor and obey God in our life. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then also eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. See, when we come to this service we think about the fact that we all struggle with sin. We think about the fact that Jesus is holy and righteous and that he died for us. And as we celebrate this, we celebrate it as obedient Christians. And that means that we repent. We confess our sin. We don't think to ourselves, oh, yeah, um, I'm a Christian and God says these things are wrong, but I don't actually care what God says. I'm going to do what I want. That's taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. We come confessing our sins, willing to repent, committed to honor the Lord with his help. Um, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that, that is a purifying, that should be a purifying thing in the church and in your life. And so I would just encourage you, we're going to read and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I would just, just encourage you, think about, are there sin issues in your life that you are unwilling to let go of? Have you taken um, the glory that's due to God and have you set God aside? Do you have a lack of reverence for God in your life and you're pursuing other things? And if those things are true, um, confess those things. Ask God for forgiveness. Ask God for help changing. That, that's what we do and that, that's what Jesus did. That's what he provided for. If on the other hand you say to yourself, no, um, I have sin in my life and I actually like it and I don't want to confess it and I don't want to turn from it. Do yourself a tremendous gift. Don't celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because when you celebrate the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way with hard-hearted sinfulness and a lack of willingness to obey God, that brings judgment into your life. When you, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, 
with a humble attitude of repentance toward the Lord, that brings incredible blessing into your life. And so let's celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to start with the bread. 1 Corinthians 11.23 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he took the bread, on the night in which he he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for the life that you lived, the fact that you died for us when we were yet sinners. Lord, you know every sin we would ever commit. God, you died for us and you offered us salvation. Lord, you regenerate us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, even when we struggle and sin, even when that's a regular occurrence, God, your grace and your mercy is just generously poured out on us. And God, I thank you for that. And I do ask that we would be a people, that we, we would be a church family that lives for your glory, that pleasing you would be the greatest priority in our life. Lord, that when we fail, that we would glorify you by acknowledging that over and over, however often we need to acknowledge it. And that, Lord, we would glorify you by coming to you knowing that you graciously and mercif- mercifully forgive every time we ask for forgiveness. God, help us to to live in a way that honors and glorifies you in your name.